Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 35-49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Heath. I'm part of the team here. If you're new, if you're visiting, welcome. We're talking about resurrection from the dead today. So you're like, okay, I'm not sure about this. Yes, that was an interesting text. And, and, and let's just acknowledge that, okay, we don't think about these things very much. So let's open in prayer to give us clarity. Lord, we thank you for uh, the ability that we have to have wisdom and understanding. We thank you that you have written these words to us uh, thousands of years ago, and, and we can still understand them today. So Lord, I pray for wisdom, I pray for clarity, and I pray that we would come away from here glorifying and, and praising you for, for who you are and for what we receive in your resurrection. In this I pray, amen. Um, let's just acknowledge that in our present age, we have confused and conflicting views about the interaction of the physical and the spiritual in the afterlife, right? We have confusing and conflicting views on what personal agency looks like post-death and how we interact with it. Now, whether it's communing with ghosts or, or a long-lost loved ones or, or even preparing for the appending, you know, zombie apocalypse... We, we, we come to this text kind of confused, don't we? 
And thanks to the cold, void, hard truth of science, where these things are impossible, or even postulated as a fairy tale, what we do is we, as a bulwark to this thing, we, we, as a bulwark to our existential dread, what we do is we, uh, we build cultural narratives in the form of entertainment, stories, books, uh, Netflix series, whatever you want to watch it on. Uh, we, we build these cultural narratives as a bulwark rather than thinking about the great beyond. So a few weeks ago, I guess a month or so ago now, before my friend died, she's a Christian, she says this to me, you know, we're having a last supper before she passes away, and she says, and she's serious, hey Heath, um, do you have a favorite pet? I'm like, yeah. Do you want me to say hi to that in the, you know, why don't you say hi to your friend, your pet in heaven? I'm like, I don't think you have that power. Like, like what do you even think? What do you even mean? So, so we have to acknowledge that this is confusing for us. Thanks to the rise of ghosts, monsters, zombie lore, we're affronted with a narrative of transformation after death that at best is messy and terrifying, or at worst, just kind of alienated and, and there. Combine these images with harps, clouds, and cream cheese, we just have wishful thinking, maybe. We think, the, the issue, I say all of that to say this, we think that we come to this text from a neutral stance of, like, whatever. Let's just acknowledge that we don't come to this text with a neutral stance. Our culture predisposes us to thinking of a possibly of a resurrected reality that, and some sort of physicality that's a lower thing, that's a beastly thing, that's something in between, something that's not to be desired, something that's to be discarded in pursuit of pure consciousness. Or worse, something to ignore just to kind of get on with life as we know it here. So Christ City, in this text, we are confronted with something that we literally spend zero time talking about, even less time contemplating. So we speed read this text. What we do is we speed this, read this text, thinking that somehow that the extremes of microbiology and metaphysics, that, that because those are, might conflict with this, we, read, you know, we do this like a palm reading, and, and we just you know, understand that maybe this is just speculative fiction, like The Walking Dead, The Last of Us, or even you know, old school. Maybe it's just Patrick Swayze doing pottery. Yeah, those of you that are old got that reference. Nothing could be further from the truth. So in order for us to grapple with the hope and the glory, what Paul is saying in our text, what I would like to do is spend some time and articulate a story of my friend, his life and his death. Because I believe that my friend's story articulates, captures the intensity, the urgency, and the centrality of what I think Paul is getting at in our text today. So I will tell my story. And then we will look at two questions that, that arise from our text. One is, what does this text say about a resurrected body? And secondly, why do we care? What are the implications for us? What does Paul say about the resurrection and our bodies thereafter? And why do we care? So as, as some of you know, some time ago I spent considerable time in a inner city Athens. And it was in an anarchist neighborhood. And I thought it was really cool to plant a church. So... During this time, a mutual friend of ours that we befriended in the neighborhood, he wasn't a Christian, he was a hardcore anarchist, he had a friend who was dying of cancer. And so this friend approached us as a church, and he said, look, can you help me? Can you help me? Because my friend, who is 36 years old, he's dying, and, I, and he's nobody to take care of him. So when I met Spiros, 
He was 36 years old. And what started out as testicular cancer pretty much permeated every part of his body. Prognosis was terminal. Now, if you're not familiar with it, but the Greek public healthcare system um, is a difficult thing. If you lack family, you fall between the cracks. So what family does is they bring you toilet paper. Think about that. Your family brings you your medication. Your family brings you the food that you need every day as you're in the hospital. Your family, if, you need, if you're having an operation and you need blood, it is your family that donates blood for you. It's your family that buys your medication, administers your medication. Your family unit functions as primary nursing care. Can you imagine how they survived the pandemic that we just lived through? Not very well. If you lack family, pragmatically, you're in trouble. You receive subpar care, and you quite literally fall through the cracks. When Spiros, my friend, was a boy, he was in a car. He was in central Athens. He's in the back seat. He's driving with his parents and his brother, and some guy blows a red light, hits their car broadside, and my friend watched his mother, his father, and his brother die. So at eight years old, he finds himself living with an uncle, because it's his only family member, who did not want to have anything to do with this boy. See, his uncle was a bit of a Casanova, he was a ladies' man, and he had a revolving door of women in his life, and Spiros was quite frankly in the way of that. So, he beats Spiros regularly, and at 14 years old, my friend went and lived on the street in central Athens. My friend, when I met him, was tough as nails, hardened, anarchist, angry. And he was a man without faith and without family. Now, upon interacting with Spiros, when we first met him, we were kind of broken by his story. A man with nothing. So as an act of faith, we as a church decided we would be his family. And having no one and no real recourse to say no, he you know, resolutely said, okay. And so we loved on him. I was holding his hand through every kind of horrific treatment imaginable, from chemo to surgeries, feeding him, bathing him. For Spiros, faith in God was a joke. <laughs> he teased me ruthlessly about believing in antiquated fairy tales. And he would repeat the, the mantra to me that, hey, Heath, man, there are just lies to control your mind. Free yourself. And he would repeat to me constantly the anarchist trope of no God, no master. Heath, you're enslaved. You're enslaved. Now, despite that theological void, we became fast friends. And the, this banter began to be a, a friendly thing. And so I, what I would do is I would, I would find all these obscure Bible stories, and I would teach them these weird Bible stories, and then he would regale me of these crazy anarchist pursuits of Molotov cocktails and, and, and bar fights and street fights. And I preached him the gospel from every single imaginable possible way I could. And he would regale me of stoic and anarchist ideology. All this time, we would plan a motorcycle trip across Europe that we both knew we wouldn't take. So it was springtime, and he was between surgery, and he was well enough to actually be outside of the hospital. And at that time, my daughter, uh, Chiara, was getting baptized. She was about 15 years old. And because Spiros was part of the family, he put him in the front seat, and we're driving to the seaside... And he leans over and he says to me, Heath, will Kiara get her new name? I'm like, what? What do you mean? 
He says, well, well, Kiara, get a new name. I'm like, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. He says, look, we as Greeks were baptized as infants, and that is when we get our name. Well, Kiara, get a new name. I'm like, dude, what do you think baptism means? And this hardcore anarchist says to me, I have no idea. Will you tell me? So this is what I say to him. I say, when my daughter Kiara stands in the water, she will publicly declare that she has surrendered her autonomy, her personal agency to Jesus. Now, that's probably the most offensive thing you could ever say to an anarchist. So I continue, because I'm having fun. I said, she will declare to all that due to her sin, she is broken, that she needs to be made new, she needs to be healed, she needs to be freed from the master of her own will. Ooh. Kiara will confess her sin, and that's what will keep her in bondage if she doesn't. She also proclaims that it is through Jesus' death, her sins are forgiven. And it's through his resurrection and that the power of death itself is defeated, that, that her brokenness becomes new. She's made whole and she becomes truly free. Baptism, Spiros, is a picture that when you go into the water, you die to yourself. And when you are raised again, oh, you are made new. You are made whole. You are made clean. You receive a life that is not your own. And when you come up, it's a promise that you will receive a new body. So that's what I tell him. And even now, his response to me, quite frankly, is shocking. He's like, wait a minute. If I believe in your fairy tale God, I get a new body? <laughs> I'm like, my jaw's at my ankle. What? Heath, will I get a new body? I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. From that day forward, Spiros became absolutely obsessed with the resurrection of Jesus. He, he was like a black hole sucking in everything he could read, everything he could listen to, every sermon, everything. He was sucking it in because he was absolutely obsessed with the resurrection and the coming eschaton of Jesus, the, the end times. And so about a month after, after my daughter's baptism, he's back in the hospital. He has, he's, yeah, it's bad. And as he's convalescing, as I'm sitting there holding his hand, and I don't remember the expression he used, but it's the equivalent of like, bro, I'm going to have to eat crow here. He says, Heath, please don't laugh at me. I'm like, okay. I laugh at him all the time, so I'm like, oh, what is he going to come up with now? He says, Heath, I believe in your Jesus. He is mine. I want him to make me whole. I want a new body after I die. I want a new body after I die. And both of us there on the seventh story out looking the sea, we're weeping. Weeping together. Despite my friend's ravaged body, Spiros was made new. He confessed his sin and he surrendered his autonomy, the very, very thing that he did not want to do. He surrendered his personal agency to Jesus, the only one worthy to do so. So why do I open my heart and tell you this story of my friend's business? Because when I, when I was writing this this week, I'm literally at the kitchen table crying. And I'm like, this is hard. Why do I tell you this? Because I think, I think his story captures the intensity of what Paul is trying to tell us here in this text. What my friend understood and was compelled by is the very thing that the people in Corinth disregarded and dismissed. 
the reality and the power of the resurrected Jesus. And from that, our resurrection. Spiros' search for a new body ultimately led into a search for Jesus, in which he found and which resulted in a changed heart. A resurrected Jesus leads to a resurrected believer. A resurrected Jesus leads to a resurrected believer. So, point number one, what does this text say? It's a long text, right? We, we read it, and it's broken up into about three sections. And so in, in, in the first section, from verses 36 to 38, we get this kind of like, we see the principle of transformation. In the second section, from 39 to 41, we see uh, kind of this weird list of differing kinds of physicality. And, and in the third bit, we see that Jesus, in Jesus, we have a different way to be human. So, Paul's discourse in all of chapter 15. So, if, you're, if today's your first Sunday here, this is where we're like most of the way through chapter 15. And so, Paul talks about the centrality of the gospel, of, of Jesus and his resurrection, and how that leads to certain things, which leads to Jesus' authority, etc. And we get to the point here where, in verse 35, it gets to this honest question. It's like, but someone will ask... How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? If Jesus' resurrection is true, how can the resurrection of the body be intelligible and conceivable? What sort of body will the resurrection produce? It's been 2,000 years since that question was asked, and we still struggle with this. Paul's answer in verse 36 is literally, if you're reading the Gen Z you know, emoji version of the Bible, it's, it's this. It's a face palm. Paul goes... You're an idiot. Come on, guys. Look around you. He points to, to all of creation, and he expresses that the resurrection, this transformation principle, is observable and evident for everyone to see. Paul, yeah, he just insulted us for our lack of insight. So he continues. Verse 36 and 38 says, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now, I'm old. It's true. You can agree with that. But I can remember as a kid in elementary school, I, I can remember, you know, the old school milk cartons, and you, you poke holes in the bottom so that the water would go through. You pack that sucker full of, you know, as my mother-in-law, the horticulturists say, it's not dirt, it's soil. So you pack it full of soil, and you poke a hole in there, and you plop a few seeds in, you pack it up, and what you do is you watch it. Can you imagine, a guy with ADHD trying to watch a plant grow, it's like, you might as well put a, yeah, anyway, we won't go there. <laughs> To this day, I'm still amazed because as this crazy little kid watches this thing grow and it seems like forever and you stare at this, like, yep, it's still dirt. Oh, soil. Still dirt, soil. And, and, and soon what you see is this little thing and you see a little shoot of grain. And what turns into from a little germinated seedling, it comes into a little plant and from that plant and you get, and pretty soon you're picking peas off and they're like, this is the best thing ever. That still amazes me to this day. Paul says that first and foremost, we as humans understand the principle of transformation, don't we? Just by looking at the miracle of creation. Each fall, trees die, don't they? Only to be reborn in the spring with new leaves. Grasses that, I grew up in the prairies, right? And grasses that are burnt off in the, in the fall, as soon as the snow melts, they for, burst forth in greenery and, and life. I remember in, in, in Corinth, 
in the spring, the Acrocorinth, the top where there's a temple to Aphrodite, in the spring, the whole mountainside turns red. Why? Because new life happens and all the poppies are, are abloom. It is the most beautiful thing. So Paul is saying, look, look, when you look to the Acrocorinth, when you see the poppies, you understand the principle of transformation. Paul says, is the resurrected body that far-fetched to understand or imagine? But Paul also tells us something very interesting. Daniel will kind of dig into this deeper next week. But Paul says, look, he's not advocating for some sort of weird communal, like, hive mind resurrection. No, he's saying, like, each one of us will actually, each seed will have its own body. Each, each one of us will have our own resurrected body. And he also says that, look, your body that you will be resurrected with, it's not, sort of, it's not a, a cast off or an old thing or, or some sort of weird animated zombie corpse. No, you will have a new body, a new and different body. We will have our own body and it will be new and a different type of body. So let's keep going. In verse uh, 39 to 41 in our text, Paul says, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There's also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly body is one kind, and the glory of the earthy is of another. There is one glory of a sun, another glory of a moon, another glory of stars, for stars differ from star in glory. We're like, okay, okay, okay. This language Paul is using is bringing us back right to the Genesis account in chapter 1. So it's just like we can see the transformative power in all of creation, we can also see this discontinuity of differing types of bodies, of different types of bodies in all of creation, from fish, birds, to the various stars above. We can understand differing types of being, of physicality. We can understand this. Why? Because we can see the raw glory of, and power of a star and the complex physicality of a human to a salmon as it spawns in the river. Paul says that we are used to interacting with the discontinuity of different types of bodies. So therefore, is it too far-fetched to imagine a different type of human physicality? That's what Paul's really asking. So with this metaphor clearly entrenched in our mind, he continues in verses 42 to 49. He says, look, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. So coming out of the different types of physicality. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written. And he's, he's dealing back with Genesis. He's saying, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven and was the man of dust. So also there are of the dust and the man of heaven. Okay, that's a lot of words. So there are also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay, on first read, this is really wordy and it's confusing. But Paul really was what he's saying. He's contrasting the type of life of this present body and the life of a future body. Paul is contrasting, really, two differing ways to be human. The present and natural, the future and the spiritual. What is shocking, what shocks the Corinthians and us today, is, is Paul is directly confronting this, this idea of dualism. 
This idea where, where the physical uh, natural is corrupt and broken and that the, the, some sort of spiritual disembodied reality in existence is good. Paul's saying no. Paul is contrasting two differing ways to be physically human. That's profound. And the difference is, is how each of the bodies, what they run on. A normal life and a spirit life. Two ways to be human. Now back into the Genesis account. In Genesis chapter 2, we read this. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord God formed the man, and then this word man is Adam, meaning human. So then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Hmm, sound familiar? Verse 47 in our text. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. Verse 49. We have borne the image of the man of dust. We are in the lineage of that creation event all the way till now. This is the natural human, the normal life, breathed into existence by God himself. And the text says later that, that this is good. This is good. Now, contrasting that, turn with me to John chapter 20, verses 19 to 22. So, the events just previous to this text that we're going to read, Jesus has died. He's been crucified. He's entombed. Three days later, he rises from the dead. And right after these events, we read this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is a great kind of missionary text, but really this is an amazing resurrection body text. And when he said that, this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you see the deliberate parallel and the significance here that Paul is making? Verse 44, it is a sown, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. In verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. This is the Genesis account. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. This is the resurrected Jesus that breathes on us. In Adam, we are naturally human with a normal life principle. In Jesus, we are a spiritually human with a spirit life principle. Paul is contrasting two ways to be human here. Verse 44, in particular, it contrasts a body animated by one kind of life, the natural life, and a body animated by another kind of life, a spirit life, a normal life principle and a spirit life principle. So is it too far-fetched to imagine a resurrected body with a spirit life principle? Now, I'm going to give you a cheesy example, but my point will be clear. Last week, I, I did a road trip. I had a thing I went to in Portland. And so I, I drive a Mitsubishi Delica. It's a diesel. And you know, it's cold out. Yeah. And, but I got to like run the preheat a few times and, and it rattles into life. And, and I get across the border and I drive to Seattle and I park and I get, I picked up by a bunch of my old Axe 29 Mars Hill friends and we get into this guy's Tesla. Okay. Now you know where I'm going with this, right? And, and, and I, this is going to sound bad. I'd never sat in a Tesla before. 
confession time. And, and as I'm sitting in that passenger seat, and we're driving, and I'm observing this screen that's the size of my, you know, like my TV at home, and, and, and I'm watching the, the diagnostic. Like, I'm an electrician in my background, so I was totally wigging and nerding out over this, this system. And the sensors, and it's observing cars, and all of a sudden, my buddy hammers on the brakes. I'm like, what the heck did you do that for? He says, I didn't do that. The automation did that. I'm like, whoa. What was really irritating, though, was at some point we had to stop for an hour in the middle of nowhere to try to find a coffee while it recharged. But anyway, I digress. So then we get back into it, and we, we end up in Portland. And what I, what I experienced was a completely different way of being a car. It was fascinating. Well, we see the principle of work here today. I rode to Seattle in a body animated by an internal combustion engine. And I rode to Portland the rest of the way in a body animated by electricity. It's two different ways to be a vehicle. Yeah, I know it's cheesy. Paul would drive, what he's driving here, that's not an intended joke. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's, he's driving the implication that if a person perseveres in faith, this is what Paul's coming to the conclusion, if a person perseveres in faith, then we will bear the likeness of Jesus as well as the likeness of the first Adam. Paul is thinking in two stages here. Look, right now, believers manifest in part the moral likeness of Christ. We have a taste of his spirit. It's, it's like the first installment. This is, how, this is where we live right now. But what Paul is also saying, look, after the resurrection, we will manifest the, not only the inner likeness of Christ, but also the outer likeness of Christ. Jesus is the prototype, the second Adam. Paul addressing a church in, in Rome, he says this in, first, in Romans, rather, chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, this is working on many levels here, the spirit of life Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So my second point is, why do we care? Now, whether you walked in this room or not as a Christian, and you're probably thinking, man, this is the weirdest sermon I've ever heard in my life. You're probably saying to yourself, though, okay, Heath, I get the idea of transformation. Like, look, I planted peas in kindergarten. I also understand that a star, like we've got the, the Webb telescope, and we can see this. I understand that the physicality of a star is different than a fish. Like, duh. But how does Jesus, this new way to be human, help me in the here and now? In the in-between? How does this weird supposed you know, non-zombie animated flesh. How does, this, how does this actually help me reconcile with my wife? How does this help me parent my kids? How does this not kill the jerk across the street who keeps parking in my parking spot? Well, in order to understand this and the power of the resurrection, I need to tell you the rest of the story of my friend Spiros. So about two weeks before Spiros dies, he phones me. And then a weirdly excited tone and, and kind, of kind of paranoid tone. He was, he was afraid but excited. And he says, Heath, my uncle somehow heard that I was dying. You know the guy who abused him as a kid? And he wants to see me. 
Now, the old me would have told him to go to hell. But, but I, I think I need to meet him. And I think I need to tell him that I forgive him. What do you think? This is what I say to him. Dude, the power of the resurrection has already started. He's like, what? I proclaim to him that the process of having a new body has already started. And he's like, dude, you know I'm dying, right? I'm like, yeah, bro. You just don't get it, do you? God has already given you a new heart. See, the ability to meet your estranged uncle is a direct result of a life transformed, made new by the resurrected Jesus. The rest of your body is wasting away, but you have a brand new heart, a foretaste of that spiritual body in which you're longing for. So my friend meets his uncle. He extends the arm of forgiveness, and they reconcile after 23 years of mutual hatred. Spiros dies a week later at age 37. See, Spiros' broken body was sown in dishonor, but he is raised in glory. Spiros died in absolute weakness, but he will be raised in power. A resurrected Jesus leads to a resurrected believer. And this begins with a new heart. That's what makes the difference in the here and now. See, if you believe, just like my friend Spiros, that your heart is changed, if you believe in Jesus and your heart is changed, now whether or not you realize it, you actually have a foretaste of a resurrected physicality inside you. Jesus manifests a new heart in you. So why does this matter? Why does this matter? Because it's a matter of life and death. Because my friend in the natural body, died. Without, the resurrected, without a resurrected Jesus in his life, that would have been it for him. With a resurrected Jesus in his life, he rises again. So after he believes, Spiros, on his deathbed, literally hours, I'm rubbing his feet because his feet were in pain. And his lament on his deathbed is this. Oh, Heath, I wish I would have believed sooner. There's so many people I want to tell. He died praising Jesus for his new heart. So why does this matter? Well, because just like my friend, we have to surrender ourselves to the power of Jesus. We have to give over our our desire to control our natural body And surrender that to Jesus so we can actually have a life that is not our own. There's a text. Ezekiel's a weird. If you're new to Christianity, don't read Ezekiel right out of the gate because it's weird. But Ezekiel has some nuggets of absolute sheer brilliance. And in Ezekiel 36, it's like this old prophet guy. In Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26, prophesying the time of Jesus, prophesying a time of of resurrection, he says this. I, I won't butcher it. I'll just read it. I, God is talking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. 
from all your idols. In other words, ways that you try to justify and save yourself. I will cleanse you from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. Christ City, right here, right now, if you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you have the prototype of the spiritual human where you receive a new heart, you receive a new spirit. You have that living inside you. That's evident in a changed heart. And this is a foretaste of the resurrected body. So my question to you as we close, is this, do you believe that this is true? Do you believe that you actually have the power to be different? Do you believe that you actually, through a changed heart, can be reconciled to the person that you hate the most? Think about it. Think about that person right now in your head. Who do you hate the most? Do you believe that this resurrected power can actually cause you to go into those dark places and be made new and preach the gospel to them and forgive them and love them in a way that you could never do before? Let's pray. God, we ask for forgiveness for the times when we operate on a normal, natural life principle, when we think nothing matters and we, and we don't recognize or understand the power that you have given us within us. So Lord, we ask that the veil would be torn and that we would see your power in our new hearts, that we would be a people who disadvantages ourselves for the advantage of the other. We ask this not because we think it's a good idea, but Lord, we ask this because Jesus paid the price and he is at your right hand advocating for us. And it is through him that we have relationship with you. So Lord, we ask that you would give us this power today. In your name I pray, amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I wanna let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.